Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Over the holidays, we're going to be releasing highlights from past episodes from this year every morning of Hanukkah and each day during the 12 days of Christmas. If you're a founder or investor and looking to meet more folks in the ecosystem, each week I host a networking event on my Upstream channel. The link is in the show notes to join on mobile. Looking forward to seeing you there. I'm excited to share highlights from my conversation with Ezra Galston, founder of Starting Line a seed stage consumer tech focused fund based in Chicago. Previously, he was a principal at Chicago Ventures. Some of his investments include Cameo, Fly Homes, and Spot Hero. Without further ado, here's Ezra. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, how you got started. Like what initially attracted you to venture capital? I'd been part of a, a few startups. Um, actually, my background was in poker, played poker for a living for a few years, um, and then got into into startups uh, in the in the poker world. But when I when I had some time to kind of reflect on my experience, and that was over four or six years or so, over a couple of them, um, I realized that I loved the process of going from kind of like one to 10, but not zero to one. I found... Uh, you know, some people are really attracted to like the idea formation and just the grind of bringing a product to life. I thought that was interesting, but I was far more excited by, you know, iterating and speaking to customers. And so when I really thought about what I wanted to do with my life, and I'd started angel investing, like a lot of folks, you know, being able to to be a part of a number of businesses and learn from them and, you know, just be really, really hungry about learning about the world. That was just kind of what I wanted to do with my life. So it's been almost a decade now. Um, and then for starting line, your listeners may or may not know this, but we're based in Chicago, which, you know, is different than most of, uh, you know, the guests you have on your show. And, and really, I just wanted to build a world-class firm in, in Chicago. I think that most people look at location outside of the Valley or New York as a liability. And I just kind of wanted to solve for like, how do you turn that from a liability into an asset? So that's really what I've been obsessed with since we started this in 2018. But just wanted to build a principal diverse fund from the ground up that really focused on consumer. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny to even call Chicago a secondary market, to be honest with you, because it's such a massive market. Talk to me a little bit about the startup ecosystem. What makes hard, what makes Chicago special and, and, and I guess your initial attraction to Chicago? Yeah, so look, table stakes is that it's a young ecosystem. It has, you know, about, it's probably a decade of really uh, into its, you know, formation at this point, ever since kind of the, the Groupon, uh, the Groupon, you know, uh, boom in the, kind of 2010 timeframe. Um, so that puts it, you know, 
a decade or two behind New York and four or five decades behind the Bay Area, right? So it's very, very young. Not to say there wasn't technology here beforehand, but that's kind of the, the boom period for the kind of recent application era. But there are a lot of interesting things going on, meaning you've got more access to industry here, um, historical industry, you know, whether that's, you know, McDonald's with food or Hyatt with hospitality or Sears and Walgreens on the retail side. So there's just a lot of institute, institutional knowledge of building really big category defining businesses. That's kind of number one. Number two is like when it's come to the, to the recent startup world, I think it's got a lot of young people with frankly, bad weather. And so companies like Uber, Lyft, Instacart, all made Chicago kind of the second or third market that they went after because it had really compelling consumer dynamics. So when you think about starting consumer businesses, like what's a great market to test on, especially for like a service application kind of business, Chicago ended up being a really, really interesting market. And then, you know, also some of the access to the schools, University of Illinois, University of Chicago, extraordinary CS and engineering departments, and that creates a lot of talent. So those are the positives in my mind. Certainly a lot of work to do, but there is a lot of foundation to build upon here. I had on Charles Hudson and, and, and Kate McAndrew, who are both fantastic. And what they were saying is how it's fine for a company that maybe is outside of the coast or, or in a secondary market or tertiary market to start in a secondary tertiary market. But when it comes to actually building and scaling, you need to either be, if, if it's software, it needs to be either um, on the coast or there has to be a, a strategy there because of talent. When speaking about the talent that's around Chicago and, and your view about you know companies that are starting out in, in the Midwest. Look, the, the reality on the ground is, is that uh, right now in Chicago, we've got three publicly traded tech businesses kind of started in the last decade-ish, you know, trading above you know, $5, million, $5 billion of market of enterprise value in the public markets. Those are, uh, you know, Grubhub, Paylocity, and Go Health. Uh, just last week, and we've got uh, Livongo, which is a ten billion dollar public traded company that has deep uh, Chicago roots. Kind of originated here, started here. Its chairman is still here, runs a venture capital firm here. So, you know, the facts on the ground are you can build a big business in Chicago. And that excludes kind of the dozens of you know startups that are still scaling that that are you know hundreds of millions in revenue here in town. I think the real the, the, the kernel of truth that, that's being expressed there is that unlike more mature ecosystems, there are just less people here who've made it across the finish line. There are less winners here. There are less people who've seen it from inception to exit on a really, really you know, big global scale. And so uh, as regards like the, the dynamic flywheel of mentorship and experience that pushes entrepreneurs to think really, really big, reimagine industries, et cetera, I do think that that is lacking here. And that's something that we've tried to do as a fund is import a lot of that institutional knowledge from great people that we know in other markets and say, hey, there's this extraordinary untapped asset here in Chicago. Why don't we import some of your knowledge and help kind of uh, take a lot of these companies and founders to the next level. And, and that's something that we've tried to do at, at the earliest stages. So again, I think there's a kernel of truth there. I think there are extraordinary people here, but I do think that just the supply of people who are, you know, world-class and gone from zero to, you know, massive public company is, is you know, 100x less than in a more mature market. Um, and so those are the headwinds you're fighting against. I know you've written a bunch about marketplaces. What's the difference between like a managed marketplace, maybe a lightly managed or an unmanaged marketplace? The classic marketplace approach, which was kind of like the web 1.0 era, or is still you know totally valid today, is 
just like traditional demand generation marketplace, meaning you have buyers and sellers who've you know, traditionally uh, transacted offline or through brokers, and you can cut out the middleman or bring it into the digital mold, and they can interact and transact directly you know, one against the other. An example of that might be kind of like, you know, an Expedia Orbis, you know, something, something like that, or booking. The, the, the kind of next iteration of that was, you know, marketplaces that had some light, uh, some light management. Um, so whereas, you know, Craigslist is just kind of, you know, an open free-for-all, platforms like eBay or Yelp started to innovate around reviews and ensuring that, you know, the, the, the reviewers were validated and, you know, proving that, you know, they had checked in somewhere or et cetera, et cetera. Right. So there's, or even, you know, with, with an Uber and Airbnb, you know, providing some level of, of guarantee that if there's any damage to the home, it'll be covered or running background checks. Right. So there you're taking it straight from, you know, a peer to peer approach to you as the middleman, as the marketplace are now involving yourself in some way and expressing to the customer like we vouch for the transaction or we're helping to aid the transaction. The, the kind of final iteration, which you're seeing more and more of in a heavy capital environment or where there's you know, capital uh, free flowing, um, are models where there is uh, a kind of value added intermediary in the middle. So that might be an example like RealReal or StockX where as opposed to just transacting peer to peer, they're gonna ingest that item. They're gonna hold that item. They're gonna authenticate that item. They're gonna refurbish that item. They're gonna do a whole lot of process in the middle for you around that item, whether it's a pair of sneakers or you know a, a purse, whatever it may be, or a bag, <laughs> but they're gonna charge you more for it. So the typical structure was that you know peer to peer marketplaces that kind of 1.0, had a very low take rate, you know, three, five, sometimes 10%. The kind of middle tier had a higher take rate, uh, you know, sometimes it was 10 to 20% because they had to pay for background checks. They had to pay for their insurance policies, whatever it was. And the final tier has the highest take rate because they need the infrastructure to actually process it. The, the danger is that in the final tier, the managed marketplaces are full stack. It has different names. Depending on how far you go, you, you cease to be a marketplace. And this is an area where some of my thinking has, or some of my understanding, frankly, has evolved over time. But if you go too far into being an intermediary, you stop being a marketplace and in some cases just become a retailer, right? And that's an interesting kind of debate to have as well. On the managed marketplace, I guess, right before they become retail or, you know, if they do become retail, but yes, you can charge a very, a much higher take rate, maybe like a 30 or 40%, maybe in some places, 50% take rate, but there's so much costs also um, center, like warehousing costs maybe, or a cost to actually authenticate. And it's a lot harder to start these businesses early on because profitability, it's really hard early on to become profitable. You really have to focus on growth. How are you thinking about all these things if someone is thinking about starting a managed marketplace? Yeah, really good questions. I'm not sure that we totally know how that story ends yet. What's interesting to note is that you kind of have to start, in the way I described it, if certain categories come online, um, or you know the, the traditional middlemen get get broken down. What's interesting to note is that you kind of need one of the earlier evolutions, at least from from what I've seen. And you know all rules are made to be broken, but from what I've seen is that you typically need kind of uh, an earlier iteration or evolution to get to a more capital intensive managed state of of a marketplace. Um, and what I mean by that is not necessarily that it's impossible, but just that investors are typically looking for a market to be validated before they're willing to get excited 
guided by a founder who has a vision of kind of moving the goalposts. So to give you an example, right, let's take food delivery and the food delivery wars as, as, as like just a great example, right? The kind of V1 was, uh, was Grubhub that was a, you know, really, uh, uh, you know, it happens to be the, the CEO is uh, on my board and, and one of our early investors. And that was just kind of one of the first digital marketplaces to really nail like just you know, just being a classic demand generation marketplace for, for restaurants and came along DoorDash and Postmates and said, we want to move the goalposts. So whereas Grubhub basically charges a fairly low take rate, but they leave most of the fulfillment up to the restaurant, whether that's takeout or, you know, the restaurant supplying delivery, they said, you know, we want to move the goalposts. We want to create a 10x better customer experience, which is guaranteeing them delivery in, you know, 45, 60 minutes, whatever it is, not forcing the restaurant to hire their own delivery workers. So we're going to move the goalposts for the customer. We're going to move the goalposts for the restaurant. But the net effect is we're going to charge additional fees to the customer. We're going to charge a higher take rate to the restaurant, right? And, you know, they went, they came along and moved the goalposts could that have could, you know could that have been the first iteration of the, of, of the food delivery world I, I don't know maybe but but it tends to not or work like that and historically wasn't hasn't worked like that you look at like you know zillow open door kind of the same thing right zillow was just kind of classic like connecting home buyers to real estate agents came along open door and said like we'll just buy it directly from you right just moving the goalposts really aggressively so some of that could be timing some of it could be that it just you know markets have to come online in a kind of systemic way um, or systematic way and so when it comes to profitability, um, I, again, I just don't know how we, if we know yet how the story ends. There, there are certainly some public managed marketplaces like Real Real and Carvana. Carvana, that, that uh, markets really seem to love. It's a $25 billion company, uh, you know, publicly traded at this point. But I think for a lot of the other models, the, the jury is still out. If What's clear is that adding all these costs makes a radically better customer experience. Unclear if it makes a radically better business model, but you have some really capable entrepreneurs who feel really good about it. Are there specific categories you're looking at right now, or, or, or it could be current uh, portfolio companies that are in that managed marketplace that you think will will eventually come into play in, in certain categories? Right now in the portfolio, not a ton that I would consider really, really full stack or, or fully managed. Um, we do have an in investment down in, in Austin um, called uh, Hitch. Uh, it, it, it connects, you know, riders looking to go from one city to another. So think kind of classic ride sharing, but in between cities as opposed to just, you know, point to point within the same city. And that has interesting mechanics. Um, and some of the ability to create stability in those routes to ensure that there's always a car going to Dallas or Houston whenever you want requires some subsidization, right? Uh, it would be great if, you know, you have liquidity from, from day one, but in a lot of marketplaces, you don't. And in marketplaces, the, the thing that matters more than uh, economics or profitability, I mean, those obviously matter, but you don't even have a shot on goal until you have liquidity. And so everything as an entrepreneur that you need to do for a marketplace in the early day is to nurse liquidity in any way you can, whether that's doing things that don't scale or potentially subsidizing one side of the marketplace uh, if necessary, or, or both sides. But again, th those need to be kind of temporary measures because ideally you're building a much better product where buyers and sellers just can't kind of imagine in life without you and when you nail that then that's when magic starts to happen your focus is it's consumer technology for the 99 percent. what does that mean to you when I, when I spoke about kind of reframing being in chicago uh, moving it from a liability to an asset one of the things i thought a lot about was we're actually closer to like the real you know average middle american than most firms in san francisco new york la are and certainly there is a lot of discussion in in uh 
today's political environment about kind of the 99% and what, you know, what, you know, the, the diversity of America and what, you know, broad America looks like. And so we tried to frame that as an asset. And that's the customer that we really care about. And what it means is that the majority of investments we make try to answer the following question, basically, like, is this a product service experience, whatever, that creates greater opportunity or accessibility for normal people? And some of that can be just straight, you know, buying products. Some of it can be a little bit on the labor side, right? Giving people new opportunities to monetize their time, their passions, things like that. Um, so to give you a few examples, like from the early portfolio, because we're only, you know, two-ish years into this fund, like, you know, Cameo, um, which is a marketplace to connect, uh, you know, uh, uh, fans with celebrities for personalized messages. Like that was actually the first investment out of the out of our fund, and and it's also like that creates that 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 enables an opportunity for real people to interact with their heroes in a way that was previously unprecedented. And sometimes it's twenty bucks, and sometimes it's a hundred bucks, and sometimes it's five hundred bucks. And if it's too much, like you know, you, you can't do it, but you wouldn't have had accessibility anyway. So for a lot of people to have accessibility to a person on their favorite sports team for a hundred dollars less than that, I mean that's just kind of a game changing you know opportunity. Um, we made a an investment in direct to consumer cookware business called Made in Cookware, and they sell pots and pans direct to consumer. And it sounds, you know, oh, that's sort of interesting, except that what they did, what they've done is they've recreated the quality of all clad, and they can sell it to you at a massive discount by cutting out all the middlemen. And the way they prove it to you is that the best chefs in the world, whether that's Grant Ackett's at, at Alinea or Tom Colicchio from Tom Chef or uh, Eric Repair from Laberna Dan, like they're all using this stuff in their restaurants. Um, and so, you know, for what would other, what, what you would just, you know, if you went on Amazon and typed in cookware set and bought it for basically that same price, you can have the best cookware uh, that like the best chefs in the world are using. And that, again, that's accessibility that previously would have cost you, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars to get in the game. And now it's a couple hundred dollars, right? And in a, you know, shelter and home environment all of a sudden that's far more attractive uh, so that business is doing nicely but you know that's kind of the way we we see the world and you know the, the majority of our investments kind of follow those themes thank you so much for the, for those examples what's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital i don't have great answers for you here i wish there i wish it weren't so competitive um i wish the feedback loops were were a lot shorter um, you know, the competitive side is you know, just my own selfishness. But when it comes to the feedback loops, I think it's, you know, I, I tell people all the time having, you know, grown up in this industry from intern to associate, senior associate to principal to spinning out, starting my own firm. It is not an easy industry for, for young people. Um, it's not an easy industry because, uh, A, every dollar you earn is coming out of someone else's pocket, right? To some degree, right? When it comes to management fees and stuff like that. So you're kind of constant and, and carry, frankly. So you're kind of constantly fighting a, a battle in that sense. And B, the feedback loops are, are so long. So it's hard to know if, if you're good or not. I've been in this business just under a decade now. And, you know, don't really know if I'm good or not. Like all indications point towards, you know, things going well, but I struggle with a lot of insecurity because it's just, it's hard to know. Um, and you'll have businesses that are, you know, flying and then, you know, something might happen like a pandemic and they kind of get, you know, shattered overnight. And did you, you know, my, my, again, my background is in poker. So uh, we used to joke better lucky than good. But in reality, what we cared about is did I make the right decisions? Did I get my money in with a lot of expected value? Um, and in this industry, it's not always so quantitative, right? A lot of the reality is quality. It's hard to know if you got your money in good sometimes. And so that is that is the part of it that I struggle with. There's obviously no answer to that other than starting a, you know, a fantasy 
venture capital portfolio to uh, to quote Turner Novak, you know, in your, you know, teens or elementary school years, like I don't know any other better solution. By the time you're 25, you've got 20 years of track record. But, you know, that is certainly, that's certainly something that I struggle with on a daily basis. Are you finding it harder to, and I've had mixed responses from this question. Are you finding it harder to establish conviction meeting with entrepreneurs remotely? Uh, No, I don't think so. I got a really good tip from a friend of mine, uh, Jonathan Trias, who runs Ludlow Ventures, that take the first interaction to just get to know the person. Like, it's not a pitch. Uh, It's not about the business. It's about the person. Um, And we've tried to internalize that feedback. And basically, you know, a lot of founders just want to get right into it. And like, hey, I'm building this incredible business. Here's what you need to know. And sometimes the, you know, the timelines of the process are, are so truncated that you don't really have a choice. But in general, we're trying to do like, we just want to get to know you. Let's spend a half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever it is, just building relationships, seeing if we kind of fall in love a little bit. And if like our values are really aligned and then let's go deeper after that. So we wouldn't even be talking if we weren't intrigued by the category or kind of opportunity you're building into. So that's been a really helpful reframe for everything going on. I think it's helped us to um, be a bit more high conviction when it comes to the opportunities that, that we see out there. And there you have it. If you enjoyed this, I highly recommend checking out Ezra's full episode.